What's up, you nerds? I felt like doing a podcast, so I'm going to tell you about the night not too long ago that I spent a few hours. I was in bed, but then Valerie messaged me, and she said, Hey, one of my friends is suicidal, and I don't know how to talk to him. Will you talk to him? And I was like, Nigga, I'm in bed. But yeah, because I feel like there's not enough people in the world who would say yes, who would offer wisdom or guidance to somebody who is in a position like that. And I think we all can relate that even if it's not that severe, there just aren't, there's just not that many people willing to listen. And that's more important than talking in a situation like that. And so I said, sure, I'll get up out of bed. I'll go upstairs. I'll fucking join the voice chat and I'll talk to this person that I've never talked to in my life and we'll try to figure this stuff out. So that's what I'm going to talk about. If you uh, aren't interested in that, then you're just a nerd because it's fascinating. It's fascinating what makes people tick and how we feel and those inner fucking demons and ah, I can't get enough of that stuff. So selfishly, I, I partially, you know, went up there because I, you know, I, I like talking about that stuff and hearing about that stuff. It's, I listen to psychology videos in my spare time, in my leisure, leisure time. So this kind of stuff is not intimidating. It's not scary. It's, it's not complex. It's easy and it's fun and it's kind of addicting. Well, anyway, before I get into that though, I just went down to the bottom of my notes in my notepad in my phone and I laughed because I forgot. See, when I write notes in my phone, it's usually something that I find uh, interesting or enlightening. Sometimes it's funny stuff, but not usually because it's more about unlocking things than it is about making you laugh about dumb shit. And there has been some comedy, obviously, in this podcast, in these podcasts in the past. Like Shannon said, it's basically just one hour of stand-up every time. Well, that's not my intention. I guess if, if that's how it's received, then there's nothing wrong with that. That's cool. I'm glad you find me funny, but I don't sit down going, I'm going to be the class clown today. I'm going to make everybody laugh. I've always felt that if you try to make people laugh, then you're trying too hard, and that makes it less genuine. I always found that the people who are naturally funny and just go with the flow, rather than being the, you know, standing up in the middle of the classroom, so to speak, and being that guy, I always thought that guy was a douche. Well, anyway, when I'm sober, as I almost always am, I, I don't drink anymore. I stopped that. I haven't drank since last year, <laughs> but it's actually been like five months, four months. Well, anyway, I don't do anything. I don't do any drugs, but occasionally I'll eat an edible. And when I eat an edible, the notes in my fucking phone are so ridiculous and stupid. Like the last time, I don't know if I shared these, but I, I did with some people. And it was like, I'm afraid to go outside right now because there could be like a mean dog outside and no sober person is afraid to go for a walk because there's an angry lesbian potentially or a mean dog and no sober person is going to say, I chewed on one Cheeto for five minutes because my mouth was so dry and then I forgot to breathe so I got out of breath. Just all these things that I was saying. You don't think that sober, but you definitely think that on edibles. Okay, well, here's another one. High thoughts. What if an armed gunman walked into the house right now and pulled out the biggest dick you've ever seen and said to me and my girl, or you and your girl, one of you is taking this in the ass. And then I thought, oh no, 
My last girlfriend, Taylor, absolutely refused to do anal no matter what. Oh, no. <laughs> Why would I write that? Why would I think that? Okay. Where does that thought come from? Who, If you're paranoid about somebody breaking into your house, it's to, to rob you or to shoot you or something. It's not to break into a house with a giant dick and fuck one of you in the ass. Like that situation, you're more likely for, for an asteroid. You're more likely that an asteroid will, will crash down on your head than some guy will break in with a huge dick and go, I'm fucking one of you in the ass. But for some reason, the high me was like, oh no, what if that happens right now? I remember genuinely thinking, because it was like 9.30 at night, I was thinking, oh no, because she won't do it. That means there's only me in the house. And I was like, fuck. It brought flashbacks back of the time the doctor gave me her index finger, and it felt like a giant, veiny, throbbing mushroom of a dick, because I'm just, you know, I'm a straight guy. That's an exit only. That's the difference between my sober thoughts and my high thoughts. Like, where was I going to go with that? Why did I take the time to write that down? <laughs> what could that possibly branch into? I don't know. So I think it's best that I just stick to writing notes down when I am sober because goodness gracious <laughs> what what fucking like you could tell that to anybody and they'd be like okay weirdo like how does your mind work exactly mine is fucked up so uh yeah i was in bed uh it was probably like 3 a.m it was a late night i don't have a sleep schedule it's fucked so it could have been 3 p.m but at this time it was 3 a.m and i was super tired and i was actually on the verge of falling asleep and valerie messaged me and if you haven't heard about the Valerie story, that's a few podcasts back. It was a good one. Got to have a nice long talk one-on-one -on -one with her, and we we worked together to figure out some shit, some detective shit. We went into her brain and into his words, and we, we deciphered some things, and it was fun. To me, obviously, I like to help people because I have a big heart and a normal-sized wiener to go with it, but to me, uh, some of it is also... It's like the thrill of the hunt. For some guys, they love to go fishing. They love to go hunting for animals. For me, I like to go hunting for causes, underlying issues, because I, I feel I'm very good at finding them, at locating them, at identifying them, and explaining them. And often cases, I have been told that I know them better than they know themselves some of these people say. And that's kind of a cool skill to have, right? So anyway, I'm, I'm in bed and Valerie messages me and she says, hey, I have a friend who is suicidal right now. And I said, oh, well, that's unfortunate. She said, would you join this voice chat and help me talk to him? And I know what she meant by help me talk to him. She meant I'll uh, give you the reins and introduce you, and then you take it from there. Because some people, they get uncomfortable, especially if you've never been in those shoes yourself. When somebody goes, I, f I feel like dying tonight. I feel like tonight's the last night. I'm, I'm over it. I'm sick of it. The, I'm sick of the, the darkness that I feel, the helplessness, the hopelessness. And immediately, that's a turnoff for some people. Some people go, whoa, this is, this is out of my element. I'm out. Uh, I, I'm sorry that you feel this way. I wish I could help, but this is really not for me. I'm sorry. This is uncomfortable for me, right? Some people get that way. And sure, surely you've, you've heard of or you've seen this in, in person, whether you've had a friend or a family member that was struggling, and maybe you were the person who, go, who were like, I don't know what to say, man. I, I, I want you to be happy, but I can't fix it, right? And I can't fix it either, but I can sure as hell 
bring it out of you and talk to you about it. And this person I had never met, didn't even know the person's name. So I said, sure. I got up out of bed. I threw on my $70 headset that has since broken. It stopped working in one ear, and it was really annoying because then I couldn't enjoy listening to music or hearing people talk because it was always in the same ear. And then I would feel like if somebody was talking, they were only on my left side, and it was just weird. So I, I fucking trashed them. But anyway, I put on my headset. I'm tired. It's fucking 3 or 4 in the morning, whatever it was. I go upstairs, and I lay on the bed, and I join the voice chat, and it's just Valerie, and she goes, uh, he says he doesn't really want to talk. And I said, oh. Well, I'm out of bed, so tell that motherfucker it's time. It's time to talk. <laughs> and she goes, oh, hold on. And I'm thinking at this time, he probably is, you know, going, this fucking dumbass, some random guy is going to talk to me and make me feel better. Like, he doesn't know shit. He doesn't know me. He doesn't know what I've gone through. Right? And those are the thoughts. I can vouch for that. The thoughts that you have when you are in the darkness. And you are unsure or you doubt that other people can recognize this darkness. You're going to go, what good is it talking to some normie, some person who enjoys each day, right? What, what the fuck could they possibly tell me? And I didn't know how old this person was, the age or anything, right? So let's dive in. So Fred, Fred is his name, Freddy. He likes to be called Freddy. He joins the voice call and he said, hi, <laughs> pretty, pretty good salutation, I guess, pretty basic. I said, uh, hi, Freddy. My name is Ben, and you're probably thinking, uh, what the fuck does this guy know? Um, but let's just talk. Let's just talk a little bit and see if we can figure some stuff out, you know, person to person. I said, before we get into it, I'll tell you a little bit about me. Because Val, for some reason, told him that I was a psychologist, and I'm not a fucking psychologist. And my inner Liam Neeson came out from the movie Taken. I was like, I'm not a psychologist. I do not have lots of money. What I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that I've acquired over a lifetime of living in the darkness. Skills that make me a perfect match for talking to someone like you. And if you don't want to talk, you just say so and that'll be the end of it. But if you do want to talk, I will listen. I will talk to you. And I will offer you advice. And anyway... I don't know how good of a, an impression that is because in my sound check, I didn't do a Liam Neeson. I just did this normal Ben faggot voice that I'm speaking in, me. So hopefully that was decent. But anyway, I didn't say that because that's, this is a matter to be taken seriously. But in my head, that's essentially what I was saying. And I said, I'm going to tell you a little bit about me. My name is Ben. I'm from Minnesota. That's in the United States because this guy's from Denmark. So I don't know how well he knows his states. <clears throat> I, uh, I'm 30 years old. When I was 19, 20, I was actually going to college to be a psychologist because psychology interested me with a minor in English because I'm a fan of the English language and knowing how to articulate things is extremely important, especially when talking with somebody and you don't want anything to get mixed up. So that was my combo, major psychology, minor English. And I said I dropped out because... My girlfriend that I loved and adored and was with for three years, well, we, we broke up. Uh, my grandma passed away. Uh, my best friend committed suicide. I didn't have a good upbringing, so my support system was pretty ass. I couldn't really count on anybody. There was nobody really there to be my, to be there for me. I mean, yeah, you've got your, your parents and your uncles and your aunts, and, and your family loves you, 
but I didn't have one person in particular that was there for me that offered guidance and wisdom and things that my 20-ish year old person self needed to hear. They, they tell you the basic things. They tell you all they can because they love you. They're like, you know, just hang on. Things will get better. Uh, you know, life isn't that bad. They tell you all the, the buzzword, the buzz phrases, things. They, they do their best, right? But they don't know. They don't understand it. And I said, after all these things occurred, I dropped out because I could no longer focus on school. I fucking hated life. Every day I woke up, I was just sad. It was darkness. My literal best friend killed himself, the guy that I had been spending every day with. And the girlfriend, who, you know, I spent every day with her also because we sort of lived together. But she broke up with me for some other dude that was like into like theater and dance and he wore spandex. And imagine my 20-year-old self trying to rationalize and, and explain that. I run it through my brain, my processor, over and over, and I can't figure out why she picks this dude who's like doing fucking twirls and, and doing theater. And I'm like, I fucking bench 320 pounds, and I'm a man, and I'm, I'm tan, and I'm jacked. And, you know, a, a very shallow way of looking at things because there's a lot of ways to impress a woman or, you know, females in general. But in my mind back in those days, it was, how could she possibly want that guy? He has no muscle. He's just, he has long hair. He's kind of a goon, right? And now I look back and I go, oh, well, he was kind of smooth. He he won her over, right? She chose him over me, right? Well, anyway, um, I just couldn't, I couldn't focus. I couldn't do shit. Trying to expect me to complete college courses when I don't, I, all of a sudden it was just alone, empty, right? And I said, so I was checked into a mental hospital. I spent almost two weeks on the fourth floor because I was suicidal. They took my shoelaces away. They uh, monitored me. I couldn't sleep with the door closed. I had a roommate. They were pretty serious about what they thought I was thinking. And I've been over that in a previous podcast about how that went, that whole thing. But I just said, you know, for a little bit about me... uh, no, I'm not a psychologist, despite what Val told you. I do uh, I do have a pretty good grip on, on consciousness and the mind and, and the ups and the downs and the mania, right? And I can probably identify some things in you, given that you are, what is he, 21 or 22? He's a young guy. Better than you can. And I said, so just so you know, before, before we get into this, I, I do know what I'm talking about. I, I've walked in those shoes. I live in the darkness. You merely adopted the darkness. I was born in it, Bane. <laughs> and so I said, so just, I hear that you're, uh, you've told Val, you've told a friend that you're suicidal. That's instantly a cry for help. As soon as you tell somebody that, you're still not in the deep stages of it, right? Because when you no longer tell anybody and you keep it to yourself and you start planning and you start uh, making potential actions or steps toward it. Maybe you go buy a rope. Maybe you make the noose, but tonight's not the night. You're not that far yet. You're talking about it, and that's good. That means we can still pull you back in. So I said, just tell me, what made you specifically on this night tell Valerie that you're suicidal? And he goes, well, I'm just, I feel like I hate life. I feel like I'm hopeless. And I said, okay, why? Let's, let's unpack this. And he goes, well, because of my past, and I, I just don't really see a future. And me, a person who, even at 30, still does not see a future, some people, they look down the road, they go, oh, I'm going to have a family, I'm going to have a house, I'm going to have kids, blah, 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 they've got plans. 
I'm 30 years old. When I look down that road, it's not lit up. I don't see anything. I, I see a bunch of dark blur. I don't know what's going to happen two days from now. I don't have plans for what's going to happen years from now. And I said, I can relate to that. What about your past is causing you to be suicidal? Because at 22, your prefrontal cortex is still not fully developed. They think it, they, the people who actually are intelligent by the textbook, think that it finishes fully developing around 25, 26 years old. And that's responsible for emotions, forming memories, old memories. That's a, a really important part of being an adult when you have to manage your mind and that thing isn't even done developing yet. He said, well, he got into some uh, criminal trouble. And in Denmark, they have different laws and different rules and whatnot. But he uh, got into some criminal trouble for, I think it was attempted murder or their version of it over there. And I was like, oh, shit, this guy has some, some serious anger issues. And he goes, but it wasn't, it wasn't like that. It was an accident, got into a scuffle, and... I, I beat the fuck out of him, but he started it, and I didn't mean to, and, and I get it, because when you're angry, and you're seeing red, and you're in a fight, you're not like a UFC doctor ready to stop the fight as soon as there's a cut. You're not ready to stop the fight like a ref as soon as somebody's TKO'd. You have two things in your mind. One, destroy. Two, don't get destroyed. And you do what it takes in that moment, and I get it. And he goes, it just got, it went a little too far, he got a little bit too hurt, and he, he, he lived, and I got whatever it was, he got so many months for, like, attempted whatever. I don't even know what the terminology was because it's different than what we have. But it was essentially he hurt somebody really bad and that person was fucking with him and started it and all this. And I said, okay, so that makes you depressed. And he goes, well, it, it, it limits me because now I'm like a, your version of a, a felon. Now I can't get a good job and now I can't, you know, he, he listed how this was limiting him. And I said, that's interesting. It's interesting because we all have uh, certain restrictions, limitations. Some people are physically limited. Some people are emotionally fucking retarded. They're limited. They just can't, you know. And I could tell right away, I was like, you sound like a smart guy. And he said, thank you. And I said, you have to realize that this is a really small window of your life. And if you are to say, oh, when I was, whatever, 19, 20 years old, I... I got into some legal trouble, and that's going to dictate the rest of your life, then that's going to be an extremely long, limited, depressing life. So I told him that what I've learned to do is I've learned to count my blessings rather than ruminate and focus on things that have... Uh, I'm extremely limited. I can't do anything that I fucking wanted to do. This is not how this fucking journey was meant to go for me, and I still feel that way at age 30. But... Here I am. I, I don't get any other lives like in a fucking video game. I get one life. And until it's over, I, I deal with what happens. And he understood. And I said, but that's just one thing. Tell me more. And he said, well, I, I've had one serious relationship and I loved her to death. And we broke up. And he said it was kind of mutual, but it was mostly from her side. And I said, I can relate. And he said, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'll have that connection with any other female. I felt like she was my one. The first cut is the deepest. Cheryl Crow told us that in a lovely song. So it's not unusual to feel that way. Now, people who date for two months, six weeks, fucking 
four months and they're like, I fucking loved her. Shut up, okay? That's not long enough. You, you haven't even been together long enough to start farting around each other, most people. He was with her for like two years or something. And that at that point, they start to become part of you. And I was told at a young age, because there's that, that expression like, with you I'm whole. Like I'm half and you're my other half and we're whole. I was told at a young age, that's a terrible way to view things. You are not individual halves that when together are a whole because that means you're depending on each other extremely, a lot, you know, for, for happiness. For That's more than a shoulder to lean on when you say, you just speak those words into existence like, you're my other half, you're my soulmate, right? I told him, you have to look at it as your two holes that improve each other and boost each other. But without each other, you're still each holes, like W-H-O-L-E, not H-O-L-E, as he was feeling. So we talked about that a little bit, and I told him how I've, I, I went O for 4, each one three-plus years. And so 11, 12 years, 13 years, whatever the fuck it ends up being, because there's always that time where you, like, aren't officially dating yet, but you were still, like, courting each other. So I don't, I don't have an exact count. I just know that I went over four and, and it was a lot of years of my life and it ends up being close to half of my life at 30. And I told him about how each time it just, the first one was terrible. It took like three years and it still hurts when I think about her, when I hear her song, there's just memories that come back that hurt. And it's like, it reopens the wound, even if only a little bit. And they say time heals all wounds. Well, yeah, I guess, but not fully. You're never fully. Once you love somebody or you love a family member or a pet, without them, there's always going to be that that scar, that wound, that cut. It hurts. It just does. And it's always going to hurt. I'm drinking my coffee because I just woke up not that long ago. And so I explained to him that at least from my perspective, because he had told me now two things. I, I cannot relate to the criminal thing, but I can relate to the restrictions. I said, let's move it over from specifically your, your criminal record, your background that limits you, because there's a lot of people, a lot of good people who accomplish great things, and they have criminal backgrounds. People change. That's, that's why we have years, like a fiscal year, things can change a lot, right? I said, let's move it over to restrictions. Let's talk about your restrictions. Are you healthy physically? Obviously, you're not emotionally healthy. Otherwise, we wouldn't be talking right now about this. Physically, are you healthy? Yes. Okay. Do you have uh, a good family that loves you? My parents adore me, and they were great parents growing up, and they're always there for me. Wow. Boom. Okay. We've identified that if your only restriction, basically, the one that he complained about was that he can't get a good job because of his criminal history. Okay. We went through a bunch of other stuff, and we found that he actually has an amazing life. He has people that are there for him through thick and thin. He's a smart guy. He's physically healthy, which is more than a lot of people can say. Uh, I, I said, you got to start counting your blessings. You're looking at it all wrong. If you're ignoring all the good stuff, and you're going, oh, well, um, I can't get a good job because of my past, right? And people will judge me. <laughs> And I'm not, I wasn't talking down to him. I was just letting him know, um, sort of assertively, that 
you're only 22. You haven't felt the tip of life's dick yet. Not even the tip. Like, more is coming. So you gotta fucking arm yourself and fucking steal yourself. You gotta prepare yourself. Because it's coming. I know it hurts right now, and I know you're confused, and I know your mind is all wishy-washy, and you miss your girl, and... The the last thing that you want to do is is downplay what they're experiencing, because... What I learned on the fourth floor was everybody has a different idea of what what is dark and what is sad and what is depressing. As I mentioned in a previous podcast, some people were on the fourth floor because they lost their children, they lo- they went through a divorce, they lost their house, they lost their business. They they went from way up on the mountain like enjoying life to all of a sudden a new low, just empty, gone, just wanting to die, wanting to be done with it. And some people were in there, and it's just an expression, not literally, but some people were in there because of spilled milk. And you can't tell a person, oh, you can't be sad about that because that's nothing. That's the last thing you want to tell somebody. Then they immediately go, oh, they don't understand. They put up their wall. They go, well, fuck this person. This person doesn't know why I'm sad. A breakup to you might be sad. To another person, it might be fucking, it might wreck them. And then to another person, they might go, eh, it's not that big a deal. There are more people out there. We all interpret things in a different light. So I wasn't speaking down to him. I just, I said, I'm going to speak to you objectively. Since I'm 30 and I never had anybody tell me this, life sucks. For 99% of people, it just fucking sucks. And I remember being 21, 22 and thinking, yeah, only uphill from here, right? Well, no, (laughs) actually, no, not at all. (laughs) I'm just... I want to tap myself on the shoulder, my past self, and just shake my head and go, oh no, you you don't know how this is going to go, do you? Life sucks, right? Unless you're part of the 1%. 99% of people, right? You have a a 9 to 5, you don't really want to do it. You have to make what I call sacrifices, but what most couples would call compromises, that is doing something that you don't want to do to keep the other person happy because you've engaged in a relationship, a business deal, in which you both yin and yang, give and take, and, you know, you can call that compromise, I call it sacrifice. Basically, uh, whether at work or at home or in your leisure time, leisure time, you have to constantly do things you don't want to do, and it sucks. And like Bill Burr said, I'm not suicidal, Life just sucks sometimes. I don't want to sit at the DMV. I don't want to wait. I don't like this long line that I'm in. If I just jumped in front of traffic and died, I wouldn't have to do this stupid shit, right? So for 99% of people, or at least most of of the time, the majority of time, life just fucking sucks. It just does. So I want you to understand that it's not you. It's not Freddie's life that sucks. Life sucks. And you have good moments and happy moments and positive moments throughout this journey. But the majority of it is either going to be neutral, meaning it does not suck, but it isn't fun, or it just fucking sucks. That's just it. So I want you to take your mind from, oh, woe is me, Uh, this is sad, and it's hopeless and helpless, and look at it like this. Uh, There's a lot of negativity, a lot of bad things, a lot of bad people in life. Bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. What you look forward to and what you do is you count your blessings. Um, Rather than maybe, you know, and I, it's easier said than done, but rather than look at it as, oh man, two years of my life, wasted, gone, maybe you could look at it as I enjoyed two years with a, an attractive female who was a good person, and I enjoyed her, and I learned from her, and I can take that moving forward. 
That is if you are still in, in the mindset of, I'm going to try again. I'm, I'm out, fucking, I'm out. But I can still, you know, I can still empathize with people who are in. In meaning they're still willing to give love a shot. And there's nothing wrong with either one. If you have the energy for it, fucking try. I just don't have the energy for it. Count your blessings. I said, you know, as far as my experience, since him and I are talking, I said, I'll tell you a little bit about me. Uh, it didn't matter which house I went to. Neither one was a home. They were both houses. I didn't feel welcome. I had two step-parents that at one point in time actually said, it's, it's him or me. Uh, I was constantly told in one household that I was a loser and that I, I was... I remember being like fucking whatever, 13, 12, and I remember a step-parent of mine telling me, you're broke, you're a loser, like no girl is going to want you. And I was like, what? Nigga, I'm like a kid, right? Like... I just remember constantly being told that I was a piece of shit and a loser. Their words, not mine. And what that does to a person, you can you can about imagine it. You can just picture it. I don't even have to explain when a child's mind is like a sponge and that's what the child feels like and is made to be, you know, made to feel like and is told constantly the ramifications of that. I, I don't think we need to get into what kind of person that creates. And because I'm older and I can objectively look at things and go, oh, well, that was their problem, not mine, because who the fuck tells a kid that, right? And I said, that's just my example of what it was like growing up. And you mentioned to me that your parents are, are great people and they've always been there for you and they love you, right? Okay. And have you had this talk with them? Do they know about your struggles? He said, no. And I said, oh, that is a big mistake. That is a terrible mistake. And I said, why are you refraining from telling your parents about your emotional struggles? Do you feel like you're a burden? That's a common word people use. People who are struggling emotionally, whether with depression, suicidal thoughts, anxiety. He said, exactly. I don't want to feel like a burden to them. I don't want to. And, and some people are ashamed. I said, are you embarrassed? And he goes, yeah, I, I want to feel normal. And first of all, there is no normal, quote unquote, to be normal, you have to have a little bit of everything in you because normal is like a sum of all the averages put together. That's a normal person. And he said, yeah, it's, I, they've been so good to me and they're, they're great parents and I couldn't ask for better parents, so I'm not going to burden them with this darkness. I don't want them to be stressed out and sad and worrying about me. And I said, you are looking at this wrong, sir. Uh, and this isn't a matter of geography like America, Denmark, this is, you have a support system and you are not utilizing it. And without a good support system, 99.999999% of drug addicts relapse. Uh, for people who are inmates for a long period of time, it's not relapse because drugs aren't their problem. They get out into the free world and they, the harsh realization hits them that they're institutionalized. They don't feel comfortable or right on the outside, so they commit crimes just to go back in. My cousins did that. It's a real thing, being institutionalized. You get to accustomed to living a certain way. You have four walls around you. There's bars. There's structure. Uh, you have constantly you know, guards and people telling you what to do. And when you get out into the open world, it's scary. It hits you, and you're like, oh, my God, I'm on my fucking own. And they go, oh, I don't like this. This is un uncomfortable. If you've ever seen the movie The Shawshank Redemption, there's a perfect example of it. This guy spent like 40 years in prison, and he gets out, and he ends up committing suicide. He can't handle it. He's like, this world is too fast-paced. It's too scary, you know? And 
that's for drug addicts and for inmates specifically. But for people who are extremely depressed, if you want a way out, you sometimes, you know, most of the time, you can't do it alone. You have a good support system. You fucking use that support system. Use meaning count on, not use as in abuse, right? Fucking train going by. I'm sure this new mic that Shannon got me that I've been told sounds really good won't pick that up, but it's annoying. It's distracting. So I said, uh, it's a terrible thing to, to not utilize your, your support system when you have one like that, because just like being physically healthy, just like having a good upbringing, just like all these positive things that you've told me, many people would kill to have that. And you said, yeah, life sucks and it's hopeless and it's helpless, but it is just that way most of the time. There's stress, there's anxiety, there's fear, there's anger. There are a lot of emotions and feelings that cover the spread of negativity in life. There aren't too many that cover, you know, like positivity. There's like joy, excitement, happiness. There's like a handful of words, but there's a lot more words that describe, you know, sort of ill feelings. And I said, you told me your parents loved you. They adored you. They've always been there for you and supported you. He said, yeah. And I said, what makes you think that they would want you feeling like this and not sharing it with them? Because if it's true that they are there for you, wouldn't you just assume or, or hope or at least think that they maybe kind of want to hear about this and take care of their son? I said, have you ever had uh, children? No. Have you ever had a pet? Yes, he had a dog. Did you love this dog? Yes. Did you take care of this dog? Yes. Would you have done anything to protect this dog? Yes. And I can relate. I have a dog. I don't have children. He's the closest thing I have to a child. I would do anything for him. I will rip your head off your shoulders if you try to hurt him. Right? And that's the kind of love that he said he had for his dog. It was his... I don't know if the dog is still alive or was, but he said, yes, I I had, I have, whatever. That's not the point. And I said, what if your dog could talk? What if your dog spoke to you and said, I'm feeling suicidal, I don't want to be here anymore? Would you want your dog to keep that from you, or would you want him to tell me? And he said, well, I would want him to tell me so I could be there for him. And I said, exactly. If you don't think that's how your parents feel about you, their child, then you're nuts. And he said, yeah, you're right. And I said, it's not a burden. I remember telling my mom that, that very thing. I was actually about your age, about 22, and I went over to my mom's house one day after work and I, I was I was tired, but I wasn't physically tired. I'm always physically tired. I was emotionally tired. I went over to there to her house and my sister was inside, so I didn't go inside because I didn't want my sister to see me crying. So I sat out in my car and I asked my mom if she'd come outside. And she did. And as soon as she got in the car I just started crying. I said, I'm tired. And she she started crying. Like it caught her off guard. And she goes, What do you mean? And I said, I'm tired. I, I'm, I can't do this. You know, I, I, it was one of the lows that I had. Not as low as when my friend committed suicide, my girlfriend broke up with me, my grandma, who I was very close with, died. You know, all that happened like in the same small time span. And that was probably the lowest I've ever felt in my life. And I've had lows since then. But this was another super low. And I just started crying. I just was sitting in the car in the driveway and I said, I don't have the energy, you know, to, to do this. I don't have the energy to shower, brush my teeth, to take care of myself. I don't have the energy. I've just been getting up and mindlessly going through work 
you know, my nine to five, where at that point in time, it was 11 or 12 hour shifts. And she started crying. And then I immediately felt super guilty because I had brought my darkness and I had gone to her on a perfectly normal day. The sun was shining and I I put that on her. And I I said, I feel like a burden and I'm sorry, I'm going to leave. And she said, you're not a burden. You're my son. I love you. And I'm glad that you told me this. And that was when I moved out from my roommates and I went to live with her for a while because it just felt nice. It felt nice being around family instead of just roommates who are like basically business partners. We all share the rent and it felt good to just be there with my sister who I love, Brandy, and my mom. And I I, I really didn't want to put that on them, but I, I told them about this. I said, it's not a burden. If you have a parent who loves you, that is the last thing they would want you to think. So stop using that term. It's not a burden. It might be sort of burdening because, of course, they have their own lives and their own emotions to manage. And then when you show up needing some someone to lean on, it might be burdening, but you are not a burden. No parent who loves their child would ever go, ugh, fucking my child just showed up wanting to kill himself. Uh, no, they want to know this. You're looking at it all wrong, man. I told him. And uh, I said, let's just go back a couple steps at this point. Now, answer this question. Do you really want to die? You told Valerie that you're feeling suicidal. And this is an important question. Do you really want to die? Or do you just not want to feel sad anymore? Because those are two totally different things. And if you act accordingly, those will yield two totally different results. Do you want to die? Do you want to be six feet under? Do you want to just black out, be done? Leave your good family, your physical health, your intelligence, your sister, your dog. You want to leave all this good stuff behind because the pain is just unbearable. The darkness is just too dark. Or do you just want to feel better? And he said, I've never looked at it like that. I guess if you ask it that way, I just want to feel better. I'm sick of feeling this way. And I said, well, it's good. It's good that you can acknowledge that because there's definitely a distinction between those. And I said, you know, I agree. I want to feel better too. And I said, Val, who was still in the call and had made almost no noise during this time, just listening. I said, Val, do you want to feel better? She said, yeah. And I said, Freddie, I don't know if you have talked with her about this yet. But she's got some issues, too. I talked about it with her. She's got the darkness in her, too. A lot of us do. She's, she had a kid, and she couldn't take care of the kid, so she gave the, her daughter up for adoption. And she still cries about it from time to time. She gets to see pictures of her daughter growing up without her as, as her mom. And I can't imagine the, the hurt that that must be. Because... You want to love your daughter, your child, the child you made, but you weren't able to. That has to hurt. It has to hurt your pride and your heart. I can't imagine. She has had, you know, she's been suicidal. She's talked about how she almost hung herself. And I said, you have to realize you're not alone. We are all in this separately, but we are all in the same pool, like swimming around, navigating obstacles, speed bumps, road bumps, highs, lows. For a lot of us, just a lot of lows. And I, I don't want to downplay how you're feeling, but I said, you have to understand a lot, a lot of people feel this way. A lot of people 
want things to be different, but things just, they can only get so different. And you can do things right and still fail. That's one of the most important things I've ever learned in life was you can do everything the right way. You can work hard. You can do your best. You can deserve greatness. But the result that you get can be and oftentimes is less than what you deserve. That's life. Life isn't fair. I deserve, at least I feel, and I'm sure many people would agree, I feel like I deserve to be in a better situation than I'm in physically financially, emotionally, but I'm not. It, it didn't happen for me. It just didn't. I remember about three weeks ago, I went through an old tote, an old tote containing stuff from the days of my kindergarten all the way up to graduation, this tote of stuff like art projects and random various stuff that my mom had filled throughout my life. And I had never really gone through it. I just never really cared. And I sat and I went through it. There was stuff from when I was a baby, like my baby book and my pictures and whatnot. And then there was like a notebook of kindergarten that I had written in and all the way up. And it just, a lot of stuff that I completely forgot about, but for some reason I recognized in my mind somewhere there were memories of these things. And then I, I got, got all the way to my 12th grade stuff, my, my senior year. And I found a plastic bag, a plastic bag full of cards, about 120 cards in there. I saved all the cards I got from graduation. And in each card was a number, a number representing the dollar amount that each person or each family gave me as a graduation gift. And my mom had went through and she wrote down all the numbers in there of what everybody gave me, one, to let me know how you know kind people had been, and two, so that I knew how, how well to thank them. <laughs> because you don't thank somebody for a dollar the same that you thank somebody for a hundred dollars. You just don't. I mean, everything that you give me, even if it's 25 cents for graduation, I appreciate. I'm not, that's not lost on me and I'm not a dickhead. I, I thank you. I thank you for just coming, even if you didn't give me a dollar. You know, thank you for being here and celebrating this with me. I appreciate that you took time out of your day to come to my graduation and congratulate me. Thank you, right? And I just want to make make that clear. I, it's not really relevant to me how much, but there was like 120 cards, and I went through and I read them all. I read every single one. My church pastor, my neighbors, family friends, friends, uh, extended family. I had so many people wishing me well and telling me that there was a lot of positive messages in there. They were like, <clears throat> they go, man, you're a really intelligent guy. You, you have the world at your fingertips. You are capable of so much. The, you know, you can do what you want. You're physically gifted. You, at this point in time, I, I was still healthy, of course. I was fucking 17 when I graduated. They were like, you're an intelligent guy. You get it. Just a bunch of positivity all being thrown my way. And I went through, and I just remember feeling extremely sad. I was terribly sad. I went through and I saw what I didn't, I, I don't even know if I read them at the time because you're a dumb kid. You take the money out, you go, yeah, thanks. But as, as a 30 year old, I, I went through and without the money, I individually read them all. There was a nice message from my dad about how he's proud of his son. There was a nice message from a card from my grandma saying that she couldn't ask for a better grandchild. You know, I have a big heart. There was just all these people that took the time to show that they recognized things in me. 
And little did I know that I would grow up from 17 years ago till 30 now is 13 years. It doesn't seem like it's been 13. It seems like it's been 50 years since then. But I, I didn't accomplish any of the things that these people said or thought that or hoped for that I would accomplish. I, I, di- I didn't become a teacher. I didn't get into psychology. I didn't nothing. I'm just a 30 year old dude sitting here stuck in fucking New York mills. And I told him about this. And I said, you're at that age where you feel, you know, 22 feels old, 21 feels old compared to 17 when you graduate. I remember thinking when I was 17, like people that are in their 20s are old as fuck. And then when you get to be 22, you're like, wow, I still feel like I'm just a barely a notch above what I was emotionally speaking. Physically, you change, of course. But I just remember thinking, like, I don't feel much different. I haven't become wiser. I'm not certainly not a lot more intelligent. You're pretty much as sharp as you're going to be when you have algebra and psychology and science and everything every day, Monday through Friday for years. And then all that stuff fades because you lose it, right? My Spanish was probably sharper than ever when I was using it in school, learning it every day, you know? So I told him, you're at that age right now where there's a fork in the road. And, you know, a 40-year-old would probably tell a 30-year-old me the same thing. Like, don't roll over and die. You're 30. You're, you're still in the front half, right? And at 30, you probably don't feel that way. But I said, okay, at 21, 22 whatever the fuck he was, I said, you probably feel like, he said hopeless, to use his word, hopeless, helpless, like things aren't going to get better. And I said, that is textbook. Like, I'm not downplaying it or saying that your situation isn't as dire as you feel it is, you know. But I said, that is textbook day one stuff that you're telling me. That, that, and I'm not a psychologist, I don't claim to be, but I've done countless therapy sessions. I spent two weeks almost on the fourth floor talking with people 24-7, whether it was staff or whether it was people about their experiences and their emotions and how they react. And I've also done a lot of reflecting of my own because that's what you do when you spend a lot of time in your room to avoid the real tension that's going on in the two houses that you live in. Even the time when I lived alone, my senior year, things were so bad between my mom and my stepdad I don't, I, I don't know what fucking talk they had, but she just said, uh, you know, it might be best if you go live with your dad. You know, it's just not working out with you here right now. And I, of course, wasn't willing to just up and go. So what we did was mom loved me enough that we went and got a apartment. And so mom and stepdad were still married. Mom would still go to the house because, you know, she was married and she uh, had two daughters who lived there. But I spent a good portion of my senior year living alone in an apartment. So I wasn't with my mom or my stepdad or my two sisters because apparently it just wasn't working out for me. I wasn't doing enough to, I don't even know. I I guess I never really did get a good explanation. I, I wasn't doing enough. I wasn't working enough hours. I don't know. There was just certain things. I wasn't welcome, I guess, for lack of a better term. Or at least... If, if, I, if ever there was doubt about that, then her actually getting an apartment and staying there with me for a few days till I got settled in and then going back home. Uh, so it's just weird, right? Step families are, it's a weird situation, but there was a lot of tension. And I, I thought it was weird that I didn't get to live with my sisters. They were welcome there, but I, I guess I wasn't. I told Freddie about these things. 
And he, I don't want to say that he, because this is up for interpretation, but the way he spoke, it was almost like he realized things aren't as bad as they feel. And I can't explain to you how chronic back pain feels when there's a constant burning and pinching 24-7 and it never goes away. I can't explain that. That's something that your imagination won't do. You have to live it to know. Uh, you can't get comfortable and even fall asleep properly because of it. Uh, I can't explain to you the feeling of what it's like growing up in separate households in which one parent basically says, it's him or me, like, I don't want this person here. If this person's here, I'm not going to be here. What that does to a kid, I guess you'd have to live it to know. But I, I told Freddie, you know, I'm not, I'm not telling you these things because I want you to feel uh, like your situation is less or, or whatever. I'm telling you these things because this is my experience and this is how it has made me feel. And this is how I would imagine things would be if, you know, insert here, situation here. And I said, I would love to have been your age and be in the situation you're in. I would have loved it. Both parents together. They adore you. They're there for you. They support you through everything. And I love my mom and I love my dad. But for a lot of my life early on, my dad had his own issues, his own demons, some drug stuff, some gambling stuff. So there was a big chunk of my life growing up where he wasn't fully in the picture, maybe on Christmas and my birthday. But other than that, didn't hear from him. And now he's the best dad ever and couldn't ask for a better one. And I, I would like to spend more time with him. And we're, we're pretty good buddies father-son, right? I'm, I'm his only kid, which helps. And my mom kind of did a 180. She was there for the majority of my uh, youth, but something happened about, oh, 10 years ago, where I guess the demons caught up with her. I mean, drugs, depression, heavy, heavy drugs too, meth, pills. She's just not herself. Uh, the Super Bowl marked one year since I had heard from my mother. Uh, it's been over a year now since I've heard her voice and I don't know where she's living or how she's doing and I, I've reached out and there's been no response and I guess we're all on our own journey and I, I wish that I had my mother in my life and I love her but like I told Freddie all these things I said you gotta I'm not telling you what's good and what's bad I'm telling you to look at this objectively count your blessings uh, if, if it feels like a nightmare well that's a lot of that is, you know, the chemicals in your brain not doing the right thing. But if you look at it objectively, you've got a family who, who loves you. You're healthy. So what if you can't become a CEO? You know, f f it's money. Money is just money. And a lot of people don't seem to understand this, but it is. And my dad told me that and his dad told him that money is just money. Like it, it there can be a mountain of it. There can be none of it. And your feelings are still your feelings. So I ended up talking with Freddie for about three hours, and all of a sudden the sun was coming up, and Valerie had long since gone to bed. And I said, you're a smart dude. You, just by hearing you talk, I can tell that you're able to identify some things. And I said, um, what kind of medication do they have you on? I'm, I'm assuming you've gone to the doctor about this stuff, you know, kept it to yourself from your family, you know, do they have you on SSRIs, mood stabilizers? Uh, if you, if they have any signs that you have some 
you know, whatever, schizo or some extreme bipolar, they might give you some like lithium or something a little harder, a little more hardcore. And uh, he didn't know the terminology I was using because they have different medications over there and different words for it, but he described it to me, and he's basically on SSRIs, these mood-stabilizing pills that they, they make you tired. They have sedatives. They make you tired so you'll sleep. You'll sleep, and then you feel rested. And, of course, you don't have to be a scientist to know that you feel better when you're rested. They also disallow you to experience manic episodes. Highs, lows, highs, lows. I'm happy. I'm sad. I'm ha- they don't allow that. They disallow that. They, they basically make you like if you picture a flat line on a screen, like a monitor. When someone dies, and it, instead of going up and down, it's just a flat line. That's what they do to your mood. They don't allow you to be happy, but the the benefit of it is that's that's the price you pay. And the benefit of it is they don't allow you to be sad. So you stop feeling depressed and, and dark and lonely and sad, but it's a bit of a sacrifice. Whether medical technology just hasn't progressed enough yet to where they can only eliminate the sadness or what, I don't know. But when you take those, you, you don't see the sunshine, but you also aren't in the dark. You're just kind of in a neutral twilight cloudy day. And I can tell you from experience, uh, because I was on them myself, I've been on uh, Depakote, um, Seroquel, uh, what else? Oh, I can't even think of all the ones I've been on. Lexapro, um, various ones, right? And I didn't like any of them because they all kind of had the same effect. And it was, I don't feel. I might not be sad, but I don't feel, and I don't like this. And after a few years of being on various uh, depression medications, I ditched them cold turkey. And I remember it was the longest month of my fucking life because I had the cold sweats. I couldn't sleep. My skin felt tingly. I, I was having severe withdrawals. And looking back, probably a terrible idea to be on something that hardcore for that long and then just to quit. And then when I went to a doctor appointment eventually... They said, okay, so I see here you're on da-da-da-da-da, and they listed them. And I was like, no, I quit those. And they were like, well, which doctor told you to do that? Like, which facility, like, went through that with you? And I said, none. I just fucking quit taking them. I was sick of not feeling. And she goes, oh, no, that is a no-no. You don't do that. Well, it makes sense. At the time, I was just like, I want to feel again. And I remember it didn't take long. It was like three weeks, a month. And then all that bullshit stopped. And I just, I remember feeling extremely down, dark, depressed, but on the days when it was good, it was fucking good again, you know? I, I went back to feeling human instead of walking around like a like a zombie. And of course, you don't want to just drop off of your, your anti-depression medications because a lot of people commit suicide after trying that because the thing that was keeping them afloat, you know, flatline, is now gone and they just whew, drop. Right? So it was probably a dangerous move. And then physiologically, definitely a dangerous move when you have withdrawals on that level. It's not to the level of Xanax or anything like that, but it is. it can kill you. Your heart can stop. Even people who are alcoholics, when they go through a detox, it is monitored. It is watched. They still get uh, small amounts of this and that and sometimes even alcohol, like a beer, you know, just to just to be enough to keep them from seizing up and having a heart attack from withdrawals. And so I I told Freddie that a lot of this darkness that he's probably feeling is because he's on this form of SSRI. He's not he, 
of course it's going to feel dark if you never see the light. But you have to realize that it's probably better during the time that you weather this storm that you, you count on those things and you count on therapy. I said you cannot do enough therapy. Go tell them everything. Don't keep it from them. Put your wall down. It's not going to help. And sometimes you feel like, oh, no one understands me. Oh, I'm never going to, you know, I'm, I'm done with this bullshit. I, I'm now thick-skinned and I'm done with this fucking feeling thing. And we've all felt that way. Even people who don't experience deep depression feel that way where you're like, I'm fucking done. I'm over it. You put up that wall. That's it. Problem is life is long and it's going to feel really long when you don't have any fucking human emotions and connections. So I said, I'm not a doctor. Don't claim to be. Val says I'm a psychologist. I'm not. I just understand what you're feeling because I've lived it. I've lived it for a long time. And I said, stick on the medication Talk with a doctor about slowly weaning off of it. Count your fucking blessings. You'll start to feel again. And as far as like romance, if, if you have energy left, use it. Do not go into a relationship with one foot in the door because that's not fair to the other person and it's not fair to you. You're going to be wasting your time. If you're in, you have to be all in. You have to be dedicated. You have to love them. Love is a verb. Love is not a feeling. You have to actively love them. You have to do things for them, with them. You have to do things together. You are a unit. It's you two against the world. That's what a relationship should be. And if it's not that, get out. Because it's only a matter of time before that crumbles. The phalanx will shatter. Also, don't rush into love. Because, geographically speaking you're limited to only the people you live around. For all you know, your soulmate could live in Georgia, but you live in Washington. For all you know, your soulmate could be some fucking Asian chick, and you're from Africa, right? It, geographically, we are limited to only what's around us. It's like there's a bunch of fish in the sea, but you're only fishing in one tiny little spot. So the odds of the perfect fish that was meant for you showing up at that fishing spot is pretty slim, right? So what you do is you accept that and you work around that and you go, I'm only going to accept what, what, what person gives me that, that feeling and anything less. You don't just date to date. I mean, that's kind of a waste of time. Like as soon as a girl is pretty or cool, you fucking, you know, tie yourself down to it. It's just, it's not a good idea. And for ladies either. Um, so I found out that he's a smart dude. He's a good dude. He's got a big heart he's got a troubled past. Uh, he's not sure about the future of romance he's he doesn't want he's embarrassed you know and it is kind of embarrassing I can I can vouch for that it is kind of embarrassing to admit that you have these some would call it weakness I wouldn't uh some would call it like Valerie she said I'm damaged goods I'm I'm broken and I said I don't think that's what that is I think you're using the wrong word I don't think you're damaged I don't think you're broken I think you're actually stronger than the average person Anybody who lives day to day with that darkness hovering over them, that dark passenger, Dexter reference, anybody who lives like that is 100% stronger than anybody that doesn't have to carry that weight. Just like like when super fat dudes, like 400-pound dudes, they lose a bunch of weight, they retain extremely strong legs because those legs are so used to and accustomed to carrying around a 400-pound frame that they became just juggernaut strength. And Joe Rogan has talked about that. Guys who lose a bunch of weight, they, uh, they just have really strong, like, 
core and, and legs because their body was, the, the muscles had to carry around all that extra baggage and weight. And I feel like in certain aspects, the your mind, your soul, your your mana, your energy, your will to live, I feel like although it's not good for it, in a way you are fortified. In a way it makes you stronger because you carry emotional baggage that nobody's ever even had to deal with. And you, you, you live with it every single day. And I told Freddie to look at it like that. Look at it as armor. Don't look at it as like you your armor's been pierced and you're damaged. And No, look at it as like life dealt me this bullshit and I made it through it. And so it'll better prepare me at least partially for what's to come in the future. The first cut is the deepest. So no girl will ever hurt you like that girl hurt you when she broke you up. It, you've already experienced the worst. It's going, it's going to still hurt for sure, but it's never going to be as bad as it was. Uh, feeling suicidal is the lowest low you can feel because people who don't understand, they, they've been a little bit sad here and there, like, oh, I'm sad today. That's nothing compared to feeling suicidal. When you come out and you say, I, I'm done, I'm fucking over it, you'll never feel that low again. You've already experienced that. You're becoming like a, a veteran, like a war fucking, I don't even know what the word is. Like you've just, you're experienced, you're a veteran, you've been there, you've done that. And I said, you've now experienced the lowest of lows. Like you've been incarcerated, you've been on the inside, you're out, you've had your heart broken, you've wanted to be done. And so like some might call that rock bottom. Some might call that like it can only be uphill from here. Some, you can call it whatever you want, but the point is that experience is going to yield wisdom. It might not make you more intelligent. It might not make you more, you know, insert here, but it will make you more wise. And someday you're going to be 30 years old talking to a 22 year old guy who feels hopeless and lost. And you're going to call upon your experiences and you're going to tell that guy, Hey man. And then you just tell him, tell him, my name is Freddie. I'm 30. I'm from Denmark. When I was 22, I wanted to commit suicide. I, I, I had been, I was over it, man. And here I am. And wherever you are, you know, at that point in your life, it's not going to be as low as it was when you were 22 and you were fucking over it. And so it, your life still might suck. I'm not telling you it's going to get better. That's what noobs tell you. That's what people who don't know what to say tell you. I can't tell you it'll get better. It might get worse. It, you know, not... It can't really get worse, emotionally speaking, than I want to commit suicide. But as far as your situation, your health's not going to get better. Father time doesn't treat us well physically. Uh, You might go through more breakups. You might just be piled on with more negativity. Your job might suck, you know. But life fucking sucks. And like I said, it might get worse. I'm not going to tell you it's going to get better. I'm just going to tell you you have a pretty good chance that it's not going to get worse. If, If this is where you're at right now, pretty good chance... Only better things will happen for you, especially if you use that support system that you've been blessed with having, your parents, your family. Especially if you don't look at money like it's the be-all, end-all. Like, that's not what matters. What matters is good experiences with good people. And we're not put on this earth to be miserable. A lot of people are, but that's not what it was meant to be. One of the times I ate an edible, I was just rushed with a like a wave of like bad memories and breakups and you know ex-friendships and family you know it just like it all hit me for some reason 
And I guess my subconscious was like, here, you should probably deal with this because you put a lot of stuff on the back burner. And I just remember sorting through it, sort of like you would with with a bunch of files in a desk. I went through it like, okay, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. Well, I went through it, and at the end I was like, this is meant to be at least a decent experience. It's not meant to be shit. A lot of it is shit, but that's not how it was meant to be. Sometimes people just get a bad, you know, roll of the dice, whether physically, emotionally, whether you just have bad luck in life like Al Bundy, like me, but that's not how it was meant to be. So you have to actively try. It takes effort. You have to try to enjoy things. So what I did was I put on some music, good music, music that brings back good memories. I played some video games. I did some fucking dumbbell workouts. I I just did things that I enjoy. And it made me feel a lot better than sitting there and ruminating and dwelling on the past. The past, it can certainly affect your future. And anybody who tells you that your past, especially as a youth, as a child, does not define who you are. They're retarded. It literally molds you and, and forms you. They don't know what they're talking about. A child's mind is like a sponge. And just because it molds you and it, it determines some things doesn't mean it determines everything. That's the, the olive branch. It's fair to say that it somewhat, and in, in some cases, a, a whole lot affects your you, you know, your you later in life. But it does not fully determine everything. There are still steps you can take and things you can do. You can zig when you should have zagged. Um, Determinism is 100% a real thing. But I just told him, take it a day at a time, you know. Try to do things you enjoy. Try to get some exercise. He told me he doesn't exercise. I said, well, then physically you can't feel that great, right? Even on the days where you're feeling emotionally good, physically you're not going to feel well because... He said he didn't leave the house. He doesn't get any sunshine, no vitamin D, no fresh air. That's a huge problem. I said, you can feel emotionally good, but not physically good. And guess what? The sum of that, this plus this equals you're not feeling good. You can feel, you know, conversely, you can feel physically great, but emotionally you're down. So what does that equal? It means you're feeling not too good. You need both to feel good, to have a sum of good. You can't have one or the other. I said, I'm, I'd be a hypocrite if I told you that you should go run a mile because I don't fucking do that, whatever. But I'm telling you right now, endorphins are a real thing. Uh, just grab some weights. Do some biceps, triceps, do some shoulders, whatever. Cardio is a whole other thing. I, that's kind of not my thing. But get some fresh air. Step outside. Just take 10 deep breaths. That fresh air will feel good. You'll feel grounded. You'll feel more in tune with nature as opposed to living in this mechanical box full of technology and electronics it just feels better it just does when you go camping it just feels good to step around in the leaves and break twigs off of trees and the smell the fresh breeze from the lake and then the going through the trees and hitting your nose it just feels good and I said don't underestimate just what a little bit of fucking exercise will do it just it just feels good there are little things that you can do each day that will help you along your journey it's not going to help you complete it. It's not going to make it easy mode. But it just, you, it's like a video game, like a RPG, a role-playing game. You're playing the role of Freddy. Go open up that chest. It's got fresh air in it. Hmm, that feels good. Go open up that one. Fucking do things, you know, rub one out. It feels good. 
watch a good movie, get engulfed in it. You know, do there are things that you can do, and it's it's a constant effort in order to feel baseline. The people who feel happy, they're so lucky. They don't know what they have. But just to feel baseline, to maintain that, do it. Do everything you can. And he thanked me, and we've been talking since. You know, I, I still keep in touch. He says he, he moved in with his parents. He told them everything. They were more than open arms. You know, they welcomed him home. They're helping take care of him. He said it feels good to be around my family. It feels good to know that I'm not alone. It feels good. He said, still no exercise, but he's, he's doing things he enjoys. Things are brighter. Uh, he, he, he's been spending more time with his family, uh, obviously living with them, talking with them. The bond is stronger. He said, thank you for everything. And I just said, uh, I've been there. I, I've, I've lived it. We're from different parts of the world. We're different ages different cultures, but some things stay the same. Some things just are are universal. And you could have been a Korean dude, and we could have had this conversation. And just take it a day at a time, man. And that's, uh, that's how I met Freddie.